Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, my name is Tom Palmer. I'm a senior fellow at the Cato Institute and also vice president of the Atlas Economic Research Foundation, which has offices nearby. And it's my pleasure to welcome all of you to the Cato Institute this afternoon for a discussion with two very distinguished and knowledgeable commentators on what is happening in uh, Central and Eastern Europe. I'll introduce them first, talk a little bit about the program, and then we'll begin with our first presenter. Uh, the first will be uh, Lajos Bokros. He is currently a member of the European Parliament for Hungary. He is a trained economist who had a number of roles with both international organizations and Hungarian organizations such as the State Property Agency of Hungary and the Budapest Bank. Also, very significantly, was Minister of Finance in Hungary and is uh, well known in Hungary. Many people like him or not, uh, depending on um, uh, their evaluation of the reforms that were brought about, but they were extremely important in Hungary for restructuring public finances and other matters. He's also the author of the book we'll be discussing today, Accidental Occidental, Economics and Culture of Transition in Middle Europa, the Baltic and the Balkan area. As a commentator, we have Professor Charles Gatti. He uh, was formerly professor at Columbia University. He's currently professorial lecturer at Johns Hopkins University in Russian and Eurasian Studies. He had been a member of the um, uh, policy planning staff in the State Department of the United States government and is the author of 11 books with another coming out this September, which is a series of studies of the work and thought and legacy of Zbigniew Brzezinski. I'd like to make just a quick comment on the book that will be the center of the discussion. It's wide-ranging. It covers a whole sweep of history with regard to Central Europe. It has chapters on the deep historical transitions, on the uh, imposition of Soviet communism and what that meant, the revolts of the 1950s and the impact that they had, and in particular, development of two rather different models, the Hungarian model and the Yugoslav model that came out of that period. A great deal of interesting discussion on the liberalization and transformation process, the sequencing re of reforms, the need for institutional development in regulation of public utilities and other issues. And then finally, his thoughts on what is likely to happen in the future. I'd like to kick it off with a quotation that was quite stark from the book, from the introduction about what is happening in the region he'll be discussing. It is going to be the first fundamental historical test of the whole process of transformation, whether market capitalism and liberal democracy will hold and survive in the European periphery, rather than succumb to the forceful waves of illiberal authoritarianism, which proudly and aggressively denies the superiority of market and political freedom over arbitrary and predatory state intervention and tries to restore centuries-old paternalism based on incontestable special interests and privileges 
sanctioned by an autocratic political system. I certainly have my views on how I hope that this test turns out, but to give his thoughts, Leos Bokros. <clears throat> Thank you very much, Tom. Ladies and gentlemen, it's a great pleasure and privilege for me to be here with the Cato Institute. And it's a, a special honor for me to speak at the Hayek Auditorium. I remember I wrote my thesis at the University of Karl Marx about the thoughts of Friedrich August Hayek in 1978 and 79, when Leonid Ilyich Brezhnev was still alive and kicking. So compared to that, we have made some progress, I would say. But uh, one of the most important characteristic features of uh, historical development is uh, clearly that it's uh, cyclical. We cannot see a unilinear development uh, Progress is not uh, deterministic, and uh, it is clearly shown by the fact that uh, the convergence of uh, Central and Eastern European countries um, to the 15 older member states of the European Union has proved to be also highly cyclical in the last uh, 20 plus uh, years. I wrote this book because uh, the crisis uh, was uh, constituting one of the probably biggest, so far biggest, historical challenges to what we call transition. And by transition, I obviously mean uh, a two-faceted uh, process. One is to transform a command economy into a market-orientated one, and a totalitarian political system into a democratic uh, liberal uh, polity. The quote uh, uh, Tom was kind enough to mention is just an illustration of this uh, cyclicality. We cannot take for granted uh, the development of those uh, institutions which uh, underpin uh, the progress of these uh, countries which uh, emerged from the ashes of communism uh, 22 years ago. Another important characteristic feature of this uh, transition is that uh, this development cycle is not synchronized even among uh, countries of Central and Eastern Europe. Some countries which were at the forefront of change at the first decade of transition, like Hungary, for example, has fallen back in the second decade of uh, transition and uh, hasn't uh, made uh, uh, important progress ever since. Uh, Hungary can be probably best compared to Slovakia, uh, which, uh, so to speak, lost the first decade of uh, transition. Until the very end of the 90s, uh, there was a nationalist, populist, uh, inward-looking uh, system which tried uh, to uh, reinforce uh, the legacy of communism by uh, building monopolies and uh, uh, trying to uh, uh, avoid uh, uh, market uh, uh, competition. But that failed uh, miserably uh, after the first decade of uh, transition. And since then, uh, Slovakia charged ahead. And now it is uh, uh, 
a more developed uh, country than Hungary, not only in terms of uh, per capita GDP, but also in terms of uh, uh, the maturity of its uh, uh, political and societal institutions. The third point I wish to make uh, very briefly uh, today is that uh, this cycle, what we can see in the progress and development of Central and Eastern European countries, including the Baltic states, is that uh, is not explained necessarily by exogenous factors, by events in Europe. But we have uh, domestic factors which play a much more important role, and I cannot uh, resist the temptation to mention Latvia, a very important representative of uh, this country is present here, the former finance minister. Uh, Robert Ziele, my friend and colleague at the European Parliament, he knows very well how difficult it was to just uh, put the uh, remarkably and extraordinarily difficult legacy of the Soviet system behind these countries and charge ahead in a situation which was almost completely hopeless. And then came the crisis, the first crisis, not this crisis, but the first crisis when the Russian state collapsed and the Russian economy collapsed and the economy was not sufficiently diverged from uh, uh, former uh, foreign trade, uh, for, former trade uh, 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 flows uh, uh, with Russia. And these countries, all the, all the three Baltic states, remarkably uh, put uh, back uh, their transition on track. And uh, since then, one after the other, uh, join even the Eurozone in a situation where many of, the, uh, those, many of those countries which uh, at the very beginning of transition were regarded as uh, star performers, including, for example, Hungary, uh, cannot meet any of the uh, Maastricht criteria for joining the Eurozone. So it also shows that political will matters a lot. A lot. Factors of shifting political power do play a primary role, and it reinforces the changes in economic policy when there is a new government uh, coming along. Now, political cycles are characterized by the strong impact of personalities, and that's uh, also quite interesting that uh, in this new era in the 21st century, we see a kind of a splendid rejuvenation of the role of uh, strong personalities. Uh, I'm not talking about Hungary. Uh, don't get me wrong. There are many other countries which are characterized by this uh, factor. Poland, for example, from Balcerowicz to Donald Tusk uh, can be regarded as a more or less stable first-class performer in almost all areas. Poland was the only country which uh, did not uh, uh, fall back into recession uh, out of the 27 uh, uh, member states of the European Union uh, since the crisis uh, uh, started. So it shows how important uh, it is that uh, you have a cohesive uh, political establishment uh, uh, playing uh, uh, more rational uh, uh, games and uh, trying to advance the cause of a ever-broadening middle class, which uh, can be probably the most important underpinning of a well-balanced uh, liberal state and uh, democracy. But at the same time, we have to acknowledge that uh, 
the institutions uh, are still uh, quite weak uh, in these countries, which is not a prerogative of uh, Central and Eastern European countries. You can see what is happening in Greece or Italy or even Spain and uh, Portugal. Uh, when there is a crisis, a deep historical crisis which tests the strength of these institutions and, and uh, institutions uh, uh, do not uh, hold up to the expectations and uh, succumb to the crisis, then you have a stalemate like in Italy these days and uh, it is a very important uh, uh, lesson uh, that uh, politics can destroy the economic situation and of course uh, vice versa. Now, institution building is particularly difficult in Central and Eastern Europe because it requires very strong uh, structural reforms. So I used to say in the book and elsewhere that what we need is a kind of a critical mass of uh, structural reforms, which uh, would mean that uh, uh, you have to implement uh, sometimes painful and yes, sometimes very unpopular reforms in a whole host of uh, areas. Uh, uh, because only a critical amount of change can really trigger a change in morality and a change in behavior. That is what ultimately would strengthen uh, the performance of these institutions. If uh, we don't have uh, Democrats behind the facade of democracy, then the whole process and the whole progress is just very formal and formalistic. And that's also what we can see in many of these countries. Now, the weakness of institutions make it possible that sometimes countries reverse uh, these structural reforms and fall back. Like Hungary, for example, the new government is characterized by the reversal of many structural reforms. And uh, one of the most important in that respect is the pension reform. We felt uh, at the very beginning of transition that uh, a multi-pillar uh, pension system is uh, very important for the uh, rejuvenation of, uh, of uh, old age uh, income uh, security uh, for these countries, if nothing else, uh, just for the fact that we are talking about uh, uh, countries with a huge uh, uh, demographic crisis. Uh, it's not only about Hungary, but uh, almost all countries uh, are characterized with a declining and aging population. And uh, on the top of that, uh, you have a, a kind of a national sport of tax evasion and tax avoidance. So on that basis, you can't build your pension system exclusively on one pay-as-you-go system whereby the name of the game is social solidarity. You don't have that in a... Uh, clearly developed way, so you have to, you have, to uh, have another uh, pillar or even a third pillar where uh, self-care and self-interest uh, plays a very important uh, role. Now, the reversal of uh, reforms uh, uh, would uh, undermine also economic performance, uh, and hence uh, we can't say that uh, uh, convergence uh, has progressed necessarily in, in all countries. Uh, uh, unfortunately, uh, some of the countries in Central and Eastern Europe uh, are now as far away from the Western living standards as they were at the very beginning of transition. So now we have to uh, start it almost all over again in terms of uh, uh, achieving a much higher uh, level of uh, convergence. As a consequence, I also call in this book uh, transition as a 
as an unfinished uh, business. Uh, and uh, I uh, uh, still maintain uh, uh, for fact uh, that uh, uh, before we can uh, uh, really strengthen uh, the ethical, moral, and political underpinnings of those uh, institutions which uh, were uh, established or had been established so far in many of these countries, uh, then there is always a danger for uh, rolling back the frontiers of uh, liberty and democracy and uh, market economy. And hence, uh, we can go back to a, a kind of a post-socialist uh, uh, mood of operation whereby uh, the panacea is an ever-growing role for the state. And this is once again uh, a kind of a European uh, disease because it's not only just uh, Central and Eastern Europe, uh, but many countries in, in, in the Western European uh, uh, sphere uh, of uh, economic and societal life uh, where uh, the role of the state is expanding and the uh, political class feels that uh, the best answer to the present uh, global economic and financial crisis is to have a, a bigger role uh, uh, for the government. I, for one, as a liberal and uh, conservative economist, uh, uh, don't believe in that uh, for a second. Uh, I uh, uh, also see that uh, experience shows, experience of transition uh, in that part of the world shows very clearly that uh, 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 socialism in whatever form it happened in the 20th, uh, in the 20th century uh, just uh, uh, maintained the backwardness and uh, solidified uh, the, the, the backward uh, structures of uh, these countries. Uh, both uh, in the institutional sense, but also in the political economy sense. And as a consequence, uh, what we need uh, is uh, recharge our, our batteries and uh, uh, provide a more uh, uh, rejuvenated impetus uh, uh, to the progress of, uh, of uh, liberalism, uh, because uh, that's the only way uh, for these countries to finally prove to the skeptic, very skeptic uh, public, ac actually, uh, that uh, it was uh, worthwhile uh, undertaking this painful exercise, what we call transition. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Um, since Tom mentioned a, a book about Zbigniew Brzezinski uh, that I am uh, currently uh, 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 I'm done with it, but I'm currently uh, reading the page proofs uh, from which this is a delightful departure here. Uh, I can tell you that next week would have been a little better when I have to do the index. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I am reminded of a, uh, a big lecture, maybe a thousand people four years ago. I forgot the place. It's here in Washington. That, uh, that Brzezinski gave, and whether you agree with him about everything or not, uh, it doesn't matter, it was a spectacular uh, lecture. And the speaker after him was Vice President, uh, or Vice President-elect uh, Biden, and who is, as you know, seldom lost for words. But uh, after uh, Brzezinski got a standing ovation, uh, he went up to the podium, stopped for a second, and turned to the organizers of the, uh, of the event and said, well, you didn't tell me that I would have to speak after Brzezinski. Uh, I feel a little bit like that. Speaking after uh, Lajos here is not exactly uh, easy. Uh, 
especially because we agree. Uh, so the, uh, I don't know whether this was done uh, on purpose or not, but uh, I am a great admirer of uh, not only of his intellect, but of his courage, uh, about which you probably know most of you here a lot less. Uh, uh, his, uh, his views on economics are wide-ranging, deep, uh, comprehensive, and his political courage is extra really extraordinary. And his, uh, his position on free enterprise, which I share, uh, is not as widely shared uh, in Central and Eastern Europe or in his native Hungary as you would think. In the common view, not among non-experts, uh, there's a, there's a, a belief that uh, in 1989, people voted with their feet and at times sacrificing a great deal uh, in order to emulate Western uh, pol political democracy and, uh, and the free market system. I don't believe that's quite the case. There's a good deal of that. But I think that 1989 and then in the Baltic states, 1991, 92, uh, was much more about about national independence and uh, and uh, a, a rebellion against uh, against the oppressors from the east, meaning the Soviet Union. There is no way that I will talk here about economics at all in his presence. You have to uh, excuse me for that. I, I think most usefully, I could make a few points about politics and perhaps the international relations of Central and Eastern uh, Europe. Uh, the first point, which will take only about one minute, uh, is a, a disclaimer of sorts, which is that it's all but impossible now to talk about this region. If you consider 10 countries as part of Central and Eastern Europe, uh, leaving aside the former Soviet Union, but not the three Baltic states. So you have there three Baltic states. Uh, you have little Slovenia, uh, which is so near to Austria and wants to be Austria. Uh, uh, if not in fact, then at least in spirit. Uh, and then, so aside from those four, uh, you have Bulgaria, Romania, uh, Hungary, Slovakia, the Czech Republic, and Poland. These countries are, have always been somewhat diverse, but in our academic and political life, we brought them together. And under communism, there were more reasons to generalize about them. Now it is very hard. There is one example for exa for that, uh, that uh, um, Professor Bokros uh, gave here, which was that um, in the 1990s, uh, Slovakia was run, most of the 1990s, uh, was run by Mečar's uh, authoritarian uh, rule, very anti-Western, and for that reason, uh, Slovakia's admission to NATO uh, got uh, delayed. Hungary was doing quite well, especially after after the uh, prime minister of the country began to listen to Mr. Bokros and put the economy uh, in some order, certainly on the, on the right uh, track. So uh, this is a very diverse uh, region. Uh, only four countries, I would say, are really concerned still about Russia or Russian domination or Russian military threat. The three Baltic states, for good reason, I think, and Poland, to some extent. Not, uh, uh, the reasons are not as good, after all. Even during commu the communist era, those decades, uh, the so Soviet tanks never dared to enter Poland. So to be imagined that now they would, I think, is, 
is a dubious proposition. Uh, but on the other hand, Russia, uh, Polish history gives every reason for Poles to be apprehensive. In the other countries, Russia is an, uh, is a, is an economic market, uh, somewhat distant, although some countries, including Hungary, is, now, is flirting, uh, curiously enough, with Putin's uh, uh, Russia. Uh, other uh, differences, uh, some countries continue to pursue the Western path, economically and politically. Uh, I think Estonia is a good case in point. Uh, a couple of others uh, remain on that path with some difficulty occasionally, but, but uh, significant majorities see no alternative to, to uh, joining uh, uh, the West, not only as members of the EU and NATO, which 10 of these countries are already, but in spirit as well, to modify, alter, develop further their political culture so that they belong there. I feel this particularly strongly in the Baltic countries and especially in Estonia. Elsewhere, uh, elsewhere all kinds of, I'll, I'll talk about that in just a moment. Uh, elsewhere, the goal uh, is, is different, support for Western, um, the Western spirit is slipping, uh, uh, very much so. If you had the impression, you know, that this is a region where uh, after decades of totalitarianism and Soviet domination, everybody is anxious or eager to embrace Western values, then I think you are mistaken. This was so in the 1990s. This is not the case today. Okay, so after this disclaimer, hard to generalize about the countries, now I'm going to generalize, obviously, because how else can I talk in 10 or 12 minutes uh, meaningfully uh, about either the political order or the international politics of the region? Uh, I would say that to uh, generalize about the political order, the 1990s was a period of transition uh, uh, outlined uh, quite brilliantly uh, in the book, a transition towards the rule of law, transition towards a free press, transition towards a separation of power, and generally speaking, towards freedom uh, in every sphere of life. Uh, there are exceptions even there. Slovakia was mentioned, certainly. Uh, I could mention some others, more reluctant transition in that direction, but the direction was still, by and large, very clear. In this decade, or I should say since the, in the new century, I would say if I had to generalize, and this I will phrase it a bit harshly here, it's, it's in many places, it's a transition away from uh, the, uh, uh, the rule of law, the free press, the separation of powers. In part, uh, the reasons for this probably are too complex to discuss here, but what we see here more is a revival of traditional political cultures, particularly of the interwar uh, period, which were not particularly democratic, except in the Czech Republic or Czechoslovakia. Uh, we, we see a transition towards nationalist aspirations about nativism, uh, and by and large, we can talk about the democracy deficit now in several of these, uh, these countries. When you take a look at the most reliable guide on this, which is Freedom House, uh, Freedom House still puts eight of the 10 of these EU NATO countries into the category of constitutional democracies, and that is very good. But there is slippage here. 
uh, Hungary, uh, which used to be uh, among the top-rated such transitional countries, is now on the verge of, uh, of uh, moving into the second category, which is where Romania and Bulgaria are. Uh, the category is called semi-constitutional uh, democracies, but still democracies. If you compare them all as a group to Ukraine or Russia or Georgia uh, or, heaven forbid, Belarus, they're doing fantastically well. If you compare them to Austria or Germany or their own aspirations of the 1990s, they're not doing well. Why is this the case? Now, that's, that's a big one, and I certainly cannot give you uh, 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 good enough answers today. But I would say that the, the, the struggle for personal power uh, is a significant factor, which in the 1990s was not as much evidence. It was in evidence, but not as much, for an obvious reason. Every, almost everybody or everybody agreed on the desire to join NATO and the European Union. Therefore, the personal ambitions and the personal differences, the historical antecedents submerged uh, under the, the, uh, the great weight, uh, the great desire to join the West. Now, once that's accomplished, uh, uh, you know, in effect, they could become themselves. Well, take a look at Romania, for example, uh, which, uh, where the influence of the West is minimal, uh, at this time. It's minimal because they're not yet in the Schengen area. But still, last year you had a major constitutional crisis between uh, the, the prime minister and the president, each of whom claimed uh, superior uh, authority. So uh, in, in Hungary, uh, uh, the situation is, is, uh, is similar. Again, uh, power struggle, basically, but it's a different kind. Um, altogether different uh, kind than in Romania, where a huge majority now can, uh, can uh, efficiently run the country, but I think away from Western-style uh, democracy. The main issue actually is, and I don't know if one can say this in this, uh, in this room, I think one can, is that the real threat to democracy is not come, it doesn't come from the left now uh, in these countries, in fact nowhere. There are no communist parties to speak of. There is the Czech Republic, Slovakia. They don't count. Uh, uh, the main threat to genuine pluralism comes from right-wing populist parties and governments. And, and that, of course, is something quite new. It also comes from a political culture that, that seems uh, puzzling, confused, and generally speaking, quite harmful. This, the political culture includes a nostalgia uh, for, uh, for the communist welfare state, a nostalgia for the meager benefits that were really uh, minimal, but still uh, 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 more, more than, than most people have uh, today. Uh, the political culture includes scapegoatism. Since things are not as sweet, as nice, and easy as they had expected in 1990, somebody has to be blamed. Well, who do you blame? Well, you blame a neighboring country. You blame, increasingly, I have to say, the United States. Uh, you blame uh, the West Europeans. Uh, you blame the Jews. You blame the Roma. Uh, in other words, you blame everybody but yourself. Life is easy that way, you know. Uh, just, just think of your own marriage. 
and think of somebody, you know, how easy, <coughs> easy it is to blame the other person. Well, uh, project this onto politics, and, and, and you have a, a nice old tradition from Russian history, from East European history. Somebody else is at fault. It's never, it's never you. Um, then there is a revival also, talking about political culture, of interwar uh, uh, pre precedents, whether it's Pilsudski in, uh, in Poland or Horthy in Hungary. These are not exactly the great winners of the 21st century. And while in their time, they might have done some good and some bad, uh, but somehow the, this revival of statues and of, of, uh, of paying homage to uh, 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 people of this sort uh, does not help the transition into the 21st uh, uh, century. And finally, uh, this is a long list, uh, I, I could go on, uh, the, the spirit that you can, you can phrase uh, like this, we're all victims. This has made a return appearance into Central and Eastern Europe. For the life of me, uh, uh, since I have lived in this country now for 60 years, I care almost 60 years, I can't understand this at all. Uh, I'd like to think I know the region, I know the history, but uh, what an opportunity these countries had in 1989 to join the, the West, to become members of NATO. I worked on that very hard in the 1990s, uh, to join the European Union. And yet, they call themselves victims. And the victims of what? Now they call themselves victims of Western colonialism in some places, or the Western banks, the banks. That's, that's, uh, they deprive them of profit and of all the good things. So the political culture here has changed in this decade. But in, like in a movie where you have the stop, it stops for a second, in the minds of many people here and in Western Europe too, things are still like the 1990s, you know, wonderful uh, progress, the extension and expansion of freedom. And yes, some of that has happened, but some of that, there have been also uh, 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 reversals. Briefly, do I have, how many minutes do I have? Do I have two, three minutes? Yeah? Three minutes. Three and a half minutes, okay. <laughs> then let me say a few words about the international relations of this region, which uh, is seldom discussed. And even, even in uh, uh, articles dealing with the region, uh, seldom mentioned there. I think there is a big change here too in this uh, decade. I sort of alluded to that. There's the kind of pro-Westernism that is, is there in the Baltics more than anywhere else, not because they necessarily like us so much, but because they hate and fear the Russians so much that compared to that, we're still okay, or better than okay, maybe. I can see that some uh, a friend from Latvia here is, 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 is laughing in seeming agreement with what I'm saying, which makes me feel actually very good. Uh, it's uh, the influence of the EU and NATO on Central and Eastern Europe. Uh, slowed down the moment they entered these institutions. When, once they're in, uh, they don't have to listen to us. And in most cases, they don't. This is very sad. It tells you something about the human condition in more general terms. Uh, but uh, that is where we are these days. Uh, the influence is, is minimal. Uh, Romanians, interestingly enough, still listened last year and the EU had some, uh, made some difference because they still expect one more step, just one more step from the EU, which is 
entering the Schengen area. Um, after that, you know, uh, we can, we can uh, you know, reduce the size of embassies, as I would like to see happen, by the way. Uh, our embassies are too large for the minimal influence that we can exert. So uh, the, there's also a great deal of disappointment there, uh, which is promoted by the nativists and the anti-Wall Street types there uh, about, about US foreign policy, particularly Iraq and the torture. That did not do much good for us, to be sure. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's worse than that. It can be used by the anti-Americans who are, may still be a minority, but they are used effectively to discredit what I, what I still regard as the best democracy in the world, which is the United States. Um, there are, the picture they have of the US is very unfair. I, I checked last week in a couple of countries that I follow what they say about the Dow Jones Industrial Average. And the answer is nothing. It's only bad news. You know, the killing in California, uh, children are this or that. You know, the economy is in, you know, you can always speak. And the West is in decline. We have been in decline uh, since Spengler, I think, uh, for, for, for years. But then Prime Minister Orban uh, in Hungary just made a speech, I think, two weeks ago in which he said, terrible Western decline. He went on and on. And the Eastern wind, he likes to talk about that. An Eastern wind. And orient, for an anti-communist, orienting himself towards Russia and China. Amazing. But in the same speech, he said that in 20 years, we're going to catch up with living standards uh, in the EU. In 20 years, we will reach the average in the European Union. I'm not making this up, in the same speech. So they want to catch up with the average of the European Union, which is in deep decline. And his popularity doesn't suffer when he says such seemingly contradictory things. Um, well, I could go on and talk more, but I can see that he's uh, getting impatient. Um, I would just say the transition, as described in this wonderful book, is better than in Ukraine, better than in Russia, a lot better than Belarus in every country. Uh, but uh, there, the gap between Western Europe and Central Europe, which we thought that in two or three decades could be closed, has not been closed. And I don't see the commitment to free markets and Western-style liberal democracy anywhere in the region to be sufficient to overcome that gap soon. Thank you very much. Thank you, Professor Gotti, for a little bit of soberness uh, in introducing Americans to the reality there. I was in Budapest not too long ago, and uh, after Martin Junjushi had called for the government to create a list of all the Jews in Parliament. So you can imagine what a chilling atmosphere this is. Jobbik has 45 members of Parliament. It is a National Socialist Party. That's just, they're, they're absolutely open about this now. And uh, just uh, two days ago, the faculty at Utvash Lorand University, all the Jewish faculty members came to their offices and found stickers saying, Jews, this university belongs to us, not to you. Uh, and uh, these are 
uh, anecdotal but indications of the, the very serious nature of what is uh, facing the region. Would you excuse me if I just interject here with one sentence? It's not the only country. Yes, I, I am also, being Hungarian born, I'm very upset by that. But when I see um, uh, Latvia, for example, uh, not being able to decide what to do with World War II SS types and so on, the problem is universal. Well, you can talk about you know, the Polish far right and its anti-Semitism, and my goodness, it's worse. I didn't mean to pick on that, just I where I was the most recently. Uh, but so there are very serious the concerns. The, the Hungarian embassy will be absolutely stunned to find out that I defend the Orban government. <laughs> yes, we are. I I'd like, will report it, yeah. like to open then to uh, some questions or comments. We have a microphone, so please wait for the microphone and then identify yourself. Yes, uh, my name is Bill Mikhail. I teach at George Washington University. Uh, two quick questions uh, for Professor uh, Getty. Um, does the hostility feeling include also anti-German feelings? Second, uh, I think it was the president of Poland uh, when he said in 2008, commenting about the decline of the West, just in two simple words, Barack Obama. How do you I'm, I'm sorry, the second question again, please. Uh, I think you mentioned close to the end of your speech about people in East Europe leaders thinking or associating the fate of their countries with the mood of decline. And I think it was the president of Poland, or a top politician who said in 2008, what is the reason for the decline of the West? He just simply said, Barack Obama. Uh, well, just brief answers then. Uh, Anti-German feelings uh, are not widespread. Uh, uh, in, 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 in the region because for every, uh, all 10 of these countries, Germany is the largest uh, a trading partner. And so uh, even though, you know, occasionally a politician will say something critical, uh, uh, but by and large, uh, Germany for most people in the region remains an example. Uh, and, and of course, there's, there are lots of guest workers there and so on, not just Turkish, but others. The second thing is, well, you mentioned, you know, the Polish government all but officially endorsed the Republicans in both of these elections, which, frankly, I, I was rather surprised because, um, you know, as, as uh, Professor Bokor said, you know, Tusk, Prime Minister Tusk is a professional. And, uh, and I was very surprised that he allowed that to happen. I don't think he did it himself, but I think President Komorowski did, and I think Foreign Minister Sikorsky did, if I remember correctly. Yeah, um, true. And uh, I, in fact, I know Sikorsky did because he even said that we have a family dispute. My wife uh, prefers the Democrat. Uh, and then uh, I can't understand why, uh, uh, why they would interfere really in domestic affairs that way. I mean, if they thought that Polish Americans will listen to that and vote accordingly, I think they, they are so mistaken, so wrong. Maybe in 1945, the Polish American vote mattered uh, in this country. There's no such thing. This is an illusion. Right here. Thank you, gentlemen. My name is Richard Ranger. I'm with the American Petroleum Institute, but I'm here just out of interest in your talk. I, it's impossible to listen to what you have to say with anything but sadness. I've never been to, Eastern, to Central Europe, but in 1989, 1990, there was an ad campaign that was quite well known in this country 
General Electric talking about its investments in Hungary, and it gave you a very profoundly hopeful feeling. Um, a question for you both, to what extent does what's happening in Hungary and perhaps to some degree in some of the other Central European countries have cultural roots? Cultural roots meaning the innervation of people after a couple of generations of communist rule in the Eastern Bloc that robs a lot of people of the experience of entrepreneurship, of ways of thinking that can support free market activity. And to what extent does it have to do with cultural roots that are broader in Europe and in the West, where today we are all consumers and too few of us think of ourselves as capable of being producers? Fantastic question, I must say, which gives me a brilliant opportunity to go back to the theme of the book, which is a much more optimistic message. Uh, contemporary events probably uh, obscure the fact that uh, despite all these hardships we face today as a consequence of the global economic and financial crisis, uh, transition has been a glorious uh, process and a great advancement for most of these countries, if not for all of these countries. Um, I still believe that there is no going back to what we experienced before, namely uh, a non-market system and a totalitarian regime. Uh, there might be attempts on the part of uh, uh, political parties and, and personalities uh, to roll back the uh, uh, achievements of uh, these changes and uh, go back to a more atheist uh, mode of uh, uh, operation. And perhaps uh, many of these people uh, are disillusioned with the uh, achievements of uh, liberal democracy. But uh, the only thing I wanted to highlight is that development is cyclical. It's not unilinear. It's not deterministic. It depends on us. But ultimately, I think that people will realize, as I told already to Tom before we came here, uh, that there's no bread without liberty. So there is no progress, no material well-being, no welfare without a vibrant entrepreneurial and free market economy. And uh, people might say that China is a good counterfactual because you don't have political liberty while at the same time it's a robust economy. Yes, but we have to take into consideration the, the initial conditions and the starting points. China started from a very, very low level. Now it is showing a kind of a middle-class development in many ways, and uh, this totalitarian monolithic political regime is disintegrating as we speak very quickly. And sooner rather than later, we will see that the economic development of China is uh, blocked uh, by this uh, uh, very inflexible political uh, system. And whenever they want to uh, go back to a more atatist and more dictatorial uh, type of, uh, of uh, economic and societal management uh, that would destroy many of the achievements uh, of, uh, of uh, uh, economic and societal uh, progress. Having said that, I agree with you that there are very, very important cultural and other factors uh, which uh, 
show themselves as very stubborn factors of uh, blocking further progress or at least uh, slowing down uh, the progress compared to what we hope uh, to, to achieve. And uh, in this uh, case, uh, let me just highlight what I say in the book uh, somewhere uh, that uh, uh, ironically and interestingly enough, uh, uh, the communist system was uh, very efficient and very uh, 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 eff effective in, in one sense, which was uh, to destroy civil society. It was very, very inefficient and very ineffective in achieving what it deemed about itself as the most important thing, uh, improving the, the living standard of the people and surpassing the achievements of uh, market capitalism. And uh, one historical reason why communism failed over a long run, of course, that was an experience for 72 years. Uh, for many generations, this was a real tragedy. But it was uh, ultimately clear, and now it is clear for everybody, that uh, the communist system miserably failed in surpassing communism and delivering a higher uh, living standard. Uh, but in, in another sense, as I said, in terms of fragmenting society, it was extremely effective. Whenever you had a communist system coming to power, the first thing they did was destroying all those civil liberties, which uh, were the most important underpinning of a, of a free economy and free society at the same time. So the civil structures, the non-state uh, uh, elements and, and ingredients and uh, autonomous players uh, in both the economy and society were destroyed in such a way that what we have today still this cultural legacy of dependence on the state and as a consequence, people expect the state to deliver for them what they themselves cannot deliver as a consequence of their competitive and efficient work. But over time, hopefully, we will, uh, uh, we will get out of this uh, situation. But uh, uh, I used to say in Hungary that uh, uh, to solve an economic crisis takes uh, maybe three, five years. To solve a constitutional crisis will probably uh, require a decade of uh, strong efforts, uh, but to, to, to solve a moral and cultural crisis will probably take uh, several generations. I'd like to follow up with that. In the end of the book, uh, you talk about the need for conscious societal action. That's absolutely key in the advancement of freedom and democracy. The best way to make the economy and society resistant to illiberal and or authoritarian backlash is to revisit and restart market supporting and strengthening structural reforms. Then you say, after several rounds of successful advancement of these reforms, you have a very long run perspective, there might be a chance for a strong civic culture and morality to emerge, which in turn will support such a system. The question is, where do you enter this process because on the one hand, the strong civic culture will emerge, but on the other hand, you're calling for societal action to create yep. a civic culture. How does one do that? So I'm sure it's an easy yeah. question. No, no, it's a, it's, a, it's a very difficult question, but in a, on, a, on a quite simplistic level, the, the answer is, uh, is not that difficult. It's, it's an interactive process. So you have to have uh, conscious... Uh, 
political action on the part of uh, civil society, on, on the part of people who believe in freedom and democracy, while at the same time uh, 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 the voters in general should realize that non-democratic, illiberal alternatives fail. But it takes time, let's face it. So for a while, you can uh, uh, convince people that uh, the state will take care of uh, them and uh, there is no need for them to make uh, additional effort. But ultimately, uh, people will realize that it's a contradiction. Like it was a contradiction for many people to see uh, when transition started that the people themselves as consumers refused to buy things which they themselves as producers created. Think about the workers in the Trabant car factory in East Germany. They all wanted to buy Mercedes and Volkswagen. They did not want to buy the Trabant anymore. It was a joke in many countries. And this is just one example. We can name uh, zillions of examples like that. So the, the Soviet man was a very interesting creature. And as I said, welfare was not achieved by the communist system. But this complete schizophrenic mindset of the Soviet man was established and was embedded in the hearts and minds of people. And that is what we need to now overcome. And that will take a lot of time. Sir, wait for the microphone, please. If you would just identify yourself also, please. My name is Millard Long, and uh, I lived in Hungary in New Laos in the decade, of, primarily of the 90s. And I must say that from that 10 years of living in Hungary, I overestimated the strength of the institutions, having agreed with you that the institutions are key. And I don't know whether I overestimated the strength of the institutions then because I talked to the wrong people. I talked to you <laughs> and people who, who spoke English, let's say. And, and, and maybe the institutions, might, if one knew the country better, one would have said, no, these institutions are not so strong. But what I see now is that to my surprise, they're, they're weaker than I had expected. And looking forward, uh, or looking backward to the 1930s, or looking forward to what might happen now, with considerable economic unrest, which might very well originate not in the East, but in Spain and Portugal and Italy, but how that might pressure the institutions of Hungary and the other countries, just as the economic problems led to so much destruction in the 1930s. Very difficult to say, Millard. Uh, as I try to explain uh, to you here, but also in my, in my book, um, institutions do matter a lot, and they are extremely, extremely important. But by definition, they are much weaker in an incipient market economy and democracy than in a well-established Western market economy and liberal democracy. Um, political changes in the early 90s, which you're a very vivid witness of that, uh, created just a facade of those institutions. <laughs> we had elections, we had political parties, we had a new multi-party parliament, uh, we had a kind of a free press. Uh, we had checks and balances, constitutional court, uh, autonomous central bank, everything. 
We learned a lot from the West. We learned a lot from the United States. But once again, I think what you need ultimately is civic culture. You need to have the democratic polity. You need to have the democratic mindset of the people so that they believe and they behave accordingly. And that's why I find structural reforms clearly important because they achieve two things. If they stick and if they can uh, stay as uh, they are, one is to create these institutions and the other one is changing the everyday behavior of the people. And that's very important because in this part of the world I'm talking about Central and Eastern Europe, we have a historical bias of looking at the state as an enemy, as an adversary. And in a democracy, one of the first things you have to learn is that now the state is maybe not your friend, but an institution which is there to help you as citizen and civil society. And that's not an easy process, uh, you know very well. If people experience a decline in their living standard, as uh, Professor Gatti very clearly and rightfully mentioned, they start blaming everybody but themselves. And they start blaming those institutions which they feel corrupted the whole system. Parties, governments, uh, several other institutions, uh, privatized uh, enterprises, foreigners, etc. And let's face it, people don't necessarily like this competitive environment because communism was a system which in a way sheltered people from competition and distorted the rules of the game, distorting the psyche of the people along the way. So that's why I find this process so difficult because it's not only about formalistic changes and structural reforms. It's even not only about institutions in the Weberian sense, but it's more about culture and behavior and morality. And all these things are interlinked and interconnected. If we have only the formal institutions, then the content suffers a lot, especially if there are new challenges like this global crisis. But I think we have to give it another try a new wave of reforms, a new wave of trying to strengthen those institutions, because what is the alternative? You know, 100 years ago, it was easy for Lenin and others who wrote uh, what is to be done in 1902. And they said, now there is a blueprint, Marxism. And they distorted it to a great extent to suit their own needs in a, in a very, uh, uh, underdeveloped, uh, uh, agrarian, vast, closed economy, what uh, Tsarist Russia was. And it suited them uh, for a long time. And there was a blueprint. Now, today, there is no blueprint. As a consequence, it is important to rejuvenate uh, the old ideas, quote unquote, old ideas, the belief in uh, liberal democracy and market economy. And in a way, uh, the sad thing for me is that the European crisis in the Western European area doesn't help us much. 
because many of those countries no longer constitute a shining example of entrepreneurialism and freedom and non-attitude civil society uh, competitive and so solidaristic behavior. So that's the problem. Now we are suffering as a consequence of many things. We, we were facing an absolutely unprecedented historical challenge. Transition, joining the European Union and the crisis at the same time. So it is probably too much for many people who cannot adapt so quickly uh, to these new circumstances. Maybe it takes another generation. Those who spent uh, 20 years in a communist system, uh, uh, like miners, uh, would not be easily retrained as uh, IT entrepreneurs. So it, it will take a generational change. It will take another education system. It will, it will take a whole host of new institutions. So I, I cannot give you a perfect answer. You know better than myself how difficult it is. But this kind of an iterative process, as I referred to, uh, previously is probably ultimately what will uh, uh, overcome these uh, difficulties. Okay, we're running a little bit low on time, so we'll take just a couple, we can make quick questions and responses. Here, 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 and here. So. And if you'd identify yourself, please. Steve Williams, uh, one of the most interesting programs I've been to at Cato, but one of the most uh, dismaying, I have to say. Um, the, you, you stressed the, the role of trying to get admission to the EU. And it, it made, as, a, as an incentive, it made me wonder whether it would be useful or possible uh, for the reverse to happen, that is to say, for the EU to entertain the possibility of eviction from the EU. And a, and a related question, when one's looking at sort of ex external impacts, uh, to what extent was the role of Western NGOs in Central and Eastern Europe helpful, uh, not helpful, neutral, uh, which presumably varied by NGO, but so uh, any light on that would be welcome. Let me just add, Steve's a very modest man, but he's one of the experts on the pre-Soviet reforms in the Russian Empire and has a major book on Stolypin's uh, property reforms. So, either one of you? Well, this is a matter of, of judgment, uh, whether uh, the EU should or should not consider uh, uh, suspending a member or evicting. Uh, I don't spend much time uh, on this issue because I know it's not going to happen. Uh, when you know that uh, whether morally or politically it would be useful or not, uh, I don't know. I don't, I don't, uh, I don't even ha have an opinion because I can see the merit of of working from within uh, and uh, and holding up some standards, but I also see the the merit of uh, of perhaps suspending a misbehaving uh, uh, member, uh, but it's not going to happen because, as you know, the unan unanimity uh, vote is such that uh, I just uh, I I don't see that everybody uh, sees itself every country as the next one to be kicked out, and so they're not going to vote for, for, uh, for this. So it's not going to happen. Um, well, maybe I think Professor Boker should say something about the Western NGOs. Uh, no. I want to be very optimistic in this sense as well. I think, by and large, the impact of the Western NGOs was very helpful. Um, you are absolutely right in 
saying that uh, it would be different from one NGO to another, but as the culture of NGOism that civil society can do something for itself without necessarily waiting for the state to support it. It's a very important new characteristic feature because, especially because what I said, the communist system was very, very effective and efficient in destroying those civil society elements, non-state elements of a democratic polity. So in this respect, I find it absolutely positive. Abraham Avidor, uh, retired Foreign Service. Enjoyed very much your uh, thoughtful and interesting presentation. I happened to serve in a region in Poland when Balkarowicz uh, announced his uh, reform uh, market-oriented program, the architect. Yes. Your counterpart, so to speak. Uh, and also in Prague and Budapest. But uh, my question relates to the comparison between Eastern Europe and Western Europe. Uh, you constantly uh, hear the media is bombarding us with news about 25% unemployment in Spain, David Cameron, Prime Minister of England, announcing referendum of England, potentially seceding from the European Union, riots in Athens, uh, IMF uh, needs to bail in Cyprus, and, and so on and so on. You hardly hear anything, anything about Eastern Europe. Uh, for one reason, maybe it's farther away, maybe it's not affected by the debt crisis as much as, much as Western Europe, but uh, in Western Europe, you're talking about countries with, a, by your definition, with the right uh, tradition and culture and, and institutions and everything. So if they're doing so poorly, as the media highlighting, uh, what, what do you think, how can we compare the two sides of Europe, Central and Eastern Europe to Western Europe, uh, economically, I mean, why why the the West suffering so much? And according to the media, you hardly hear about any debt crisis in Poland or in in Czech Republic, any other country. I mean, maybe that's actually a you know a bright spot in in the overall situation there. Can I make a few yep. comments? Um, I don't think there is such an area as a unified Western Europe. And I don't think there is such an area as a unified Central and Eastern Europe. Professor Gatti mentioned that already. So you may not hear anything about the uh, Polish or Czech uh, public debt or foreign debt, but I'm pretty sure that if you read the press, you can almost every day find a good article about the Hungarian public debt or foreign debt for that matter. In Romania, Bulgaria, several others uh, pretty close to that. Um, but in Western Europe, I think uh, it is now obvious that there is no such a thing as a Western European model of market economy and uh, liberal democracy. You have at least four models. You have the Nordic model, you have the Rhineland model, you have the Anglo-Saxon model, and you have the Southern or Mediterranean model. And what is in crisis in most cases is the Mediterranean one, not the Nordic one. Nobody talks about Sweden, Finland, let alone Norway and Denmark as a pariah of, uh, uh, of the crisis. Uh, they don't suffer, suffer uh, as a consequence almost uh, at all. Actually, one, one month ago, there was a, a, a supplement in The Economist which uh, praised uh, the development of these countries, how they can combine uh, top-level uh, international uh, economic competitiveness with a 
relatively high level of uh, societal cohesion and solidarity. So, uh, you know, it depends on how you select your benchmark. If you select uh, the Nordic countries, then uh, Central and Eastern Europe is a miserable place. If you compare them to uh, Spain or, or, or Greece, then it is, it is less so. But uh, that's why I, I agree completely with, uh, with Professor Gatti that uh, it's very difficult to generalize in case of transition of uh, Central and Eastern Europe. In the book, I just highlighted those uh, uh, basic, very fundamental, common characteristic features which uh, are uh, uh, always important if you want to advance uh, transition. But at the same time, I also highlighted that uh, there's a huge uh, difference among countries in terms of how successfully they were able to implement all those structural reforms. And as a consequence, some of them advanced, some of, this, some of them have fallen back very clearly in the path of uh, convergence. If I could add, even the Nordic model has multiple elements. Norway of with the yeah. oil money and Sweden went through their crisis in the 1990s and retrenched dramatically. Public perception was not caught up to the reality in Sweden, which is not the gigantic welfare state that it's perceived as yes. in the United States. It's much leaner and more modest. It depends on which country, though. That's one of the, There's multiple policies. Yes, sir. Thank you. I'm Marco Schweiss from the Hungarian Embassy. I'd like to uh, talk about two things very briefly because I know that we're running out of time. One is the, that was already touched upon uh, the shameful event that was in the parliament, the member of parliament, Jobbik, uh, who said that you know he wants to set up all the lists about the Jews. And I want to just say that the Jobbik is an opposition party. They have 10%, as you have also uh, mentioned, in the parliament. Uh, and all the shameful sayings that they are uh, doing and they are doing in the parliament was condemned all the times by uh, the government at a very high level. So I just want to stress it that they are not a part of the government, they are an opposition party who are in the parliament, unfortunately. The other thing is related to um, work an economic issue. Actually, I have an economic background. I was serving in the Ministry of Finance, uh, and they praised your name, my colleagues. I joined in 2006, so a bit you were lucky. later. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. And um, it's about the fact that if you're looking, uh, looking at uh, analysis that forecasts uh, GDP growth, uh, on the in the world, and if you compare how the U.S. and the European Union is doing in a 10, 20, 30 years time horizon, compared to uh, the um, China, for example, or mm -hmm. other developing countries, it's not a question that the share of global GDP of the West is going to fall compared to the others. Uh, so it's there are two very important strategies, I think, and uh, uh, the Hungarian government supports and, and does uh, both of them. Uh, one is that you have to uh, do more integration 
and you have to increase uh, trade, transatlantic trade. That's why it's very important. The recently issued free trade arrangements that will be done between the, the US and the European Union and the, the TPP that's uh, on the, uh, in the Pacific um, area. And, but the other thing that also the US and the EU is doing is involvement in those regions, which is, you can call it the pivot or the rebalancing, as they call it in Washington, uh, to Asia and, and to the East. Mm. And that's this, the EU has the same strategy and Hungary has the same strategy. You know, you have to, um, because of, of economic interest, you have to uh, open to that region. Thank you. Comment, Was there any yeah. question? Yeah. Um, or do you have any question? No. I'm, I'm curious about your opinion. Mm, okay. How much time do I have? <laughs> Ninety-two uh, seconds. Very good. Okay. Um, I want to comment on both questions, actually, if you allow me. Uh, yes, you're absolutely right. Uh, uh, the government of Hungary was. Uh, quite strongly condemning uh, this uh, Nazi uh, member of the Hungarian parliament who wanted to uh, bring up a list of, uh, of Jews. But when uh, Jolt Bayer, a journalist uh, having a Fidesz uh, membership card, uh, labeled the Roma as animals, there was silence. So I'm, sor I'm sorry. Uh, there are uh, uh, examples uh, both ways. And that's uh, inconsistent, to say the least. There are many other examples, uh, but I don't want to spend too much time on this. The other question is uh, also interesting. Uh, and it implies several uh, questions, if I understand your, your comments uh, correctly. Of course, uh, uh, Hungary shall not be uh, uh, devoting all its energies to the transatlantic region because uh, it looks like uh, Asia and uh, the Pacific region is a more vibrant, uh, higher growth uh, area of, uh, of the world economy. Uh, that's for sure. Uh, but uh, the question for Hungary is not that it is uh, joining this or that area. It has to do both. And uh, it is also obvious that uh, uh, many of the Pacific area countries are, explain, are, are experiencing a higher level of growth because their starting point is much lower. While you reach a higher level of development uh, like Japan, then uh, the difficulties are, are very different. And uh, I'm pretty sure that as time goes by and uh, China becomes a, a much more developed uh, economy, it, it will not be able to sustain a 7.5% uh, uh, growth rate uh, uh, forever. It's, it's just a catch-up period. So if, if we want to be part of that, uh, that's fine. But, but my problem is that uh, whatever strategy Hungary has been choosing so far, uh, it hasn't caught up. So our convergence is stalled or reversed rather. So our growth rate is very far from uh, uh, the Chinese uh, or, or Asia-Pacific uh, growth rates. And uh, it is, uh, in many cases, even below that of the Western European uh, uh, stagnating economies. So, so when it comes to convergence, 
then uh, I think uh, for a small open economy, it is absolutely indispensable uh, to implement uh, very strong market-orientated reforms, uh, which uh, uh, reduce the size of the state and which uh, allow competition to rule and uh, uh, define the role of the state in a different way. Uh, rather than distorting competition, the state has to sharpen uh, competition and uh, make it more transparent and, uh, and more forceful. And uh, this is where I uh, respectfully disagree with the economic policy of the present government. Professor Gatti. Uh, and just on the first question of, of uh, anti-Semitism, well, you are quite right that uh, uh, this party, Jobbik, uh, with about 10% representation in parliament is explicitly uh, and disgustingly uh, 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 and openly and repeatedly uh, anti-Semitic. Uh, but uh, the issue is much more complicated than that. You cannot say, well, Jobbik is anti-Semitic while Fidesz and the government, oops, Fidesz and the government uh, represent an altogether different perspective. It's, it's, it's not quite like that. Uh, Fidesz is, I think, as Professor Bokros said, uh, Fidesz does have, uh, I would say, most leaders who are uh, uh, strange to this kind of, uh, of uh, virulent uh, anti-Semitism. On the other hand, uh, take a look at today's news, just today's news, okay? Today is March 15, which is Hungarian National Day, the day when many uh, awards are given. Uh, and one of the awards, uh, uh, something called Tancic Prize or Award, uh, it was given, I guess, earlier today, uh, then to a man, uh, a television commentator. And uh, somebody there uh, from opposition uh, sent me a YouTube uh, this morning, uh, watching this man pontificate on his on one of his his recent uh, uh, television programs, and I'll just give you one one uh, one illustration of how he did that. He didn't call himself an anti-Semite, but he said he I'm an anti-Semite. Uh, S Z E M E T. Semite means in Hungarian garbage. So he is an anti-garbage, but it's the words are very similar, anti-Semite or anti-Semite. And of course, the whole uh, lecture there on YouTube was about how much he hated the anti-Semite, which is to say uh, the Jews. Uh, now, this is an, on a far-right television station, quite popular, by the way, uh, I'm told, in, in Hungary. I've never seen it myself. Uh, but he got, he got a national award today. Now, the guy deciding that uh, said, well, I didn't know what he was like afterwards. Well, if you believe that, you believe anything. Uh, this is not possible uh, that they didn't know. They know because they wink at the anti-Semitic far right, not because they are that way, but because they want to get their votes. I mean, this is traditional politics, if you may say that. But in Hungary, in Hungary where 600,000 Jews were killed, during the Holocaust, this is a dangerous kind of wink. Uh, you, this, this, this is not a game that you play, but they play the game and they play it regularly. A second point here about popular anti-Semitism. According to last year's uh, uh, poll by the Anti-Defamation League, uh, Hungary is ahead of Spain and Poland as the number one country in Europe, where 73% of the people uh, in this survey were identified as somewhat 
or radically anti-Semitic. I happen not to like the methodology used by this group. Okay, so take away 10%, take away 25%, okay? Uh, or say it's only 10 countries and what about the others? So you can debate it, but you cannot take away the major conclusion, which is that the government does not stand up, contrary to what you said, to, uh, to, uh, uh, to these anti-Semites. Orban never spoke out on this issue, by the way. Others have, Mr. Rogan. But Orban says, we will defend our Jewish citizens. That in itself is an insult. They are not Jewish citizens. They're Hungarian citizens of Jewish, of, of Jewish background. Also, I could share with you some of the emails that I got, including one yesterday, uh, from, from the threats that I get from Budapest from being critical of the Orban government. Some of them have anti-Semitic content, a lot of them. So the issue is very serious, and you cannot blame it only on your big. Let's make this the last question back here. You'll be around for a little while. Absolutely. Uh, my name is uh, Tzbitan Shalimana, I'm a journalist for the Macedonian Information Agency from the Republic of Macedonia. I was intrigued by your comments about the NGO sector in Eastern Europe, and I'm not expert on Hungary, but I have more experience in the Balkans. And uh, I was interested in, uh, I mean, my, my view is that, experience is that uh, the, there is a very large, a wi a wide uh, non-governmental uh, sector in, uh, in the southeast of Europe, but it's, uh, it's coming most uh, predominantly from the left, uh, financed or educated, you know, getting uh, training and uh, trips and uh, uh, th things like, uh, you know, um, talking points, uh, help, help for setting up uh, all sorts of media. And while they do some good work in terms of, uh, uh, you know, promoting tolerance toward minorities, toward, uh, you know, different non-core groups, uh, they are really not friends of the free market or of the individual property or... Uh, um, do, do you see any kind of balance uh, uh, in the NGO sector uh, uh, in terms of uh, helping, educating the conservative parties and uh, um, the pro-conservative media in Eastern Europe to curb these populist impulses but be unapologetically free market at the same time? No, I fully agree with you that uh, it would be nice to have uh, uh, much more active uh, participation of uh, uh, more conservatively inclined uh, NGOs uh, uh, in the whole region. So that's uh, for sure. and. Uh, uh, as a member of the uh, European Parliament belonging to the group of uh, European conservatives and uh, reformists, uh, I urge uh, all, all the participating uh, parties, uh, starting with the British Conservative Party, that uh, uh, they should uh, be much more active uh, in this part of the world. Uh, but when it comes to uh, the overall impact of uh, non-governmental organizations, uh, uh, I don't want to distinguish too much about their ideology. Uh, the very fact that non-state actors are becoming active is, is a value, is an important contribution to the development of these societies uh, uh, by itself. So uh, I don't uh, fight against uh, NGOs who may not like uh, uh, the market because uh, uh, the very fact that at least there are NGOs uh, which uh, uh, do not fully uh, depend on, on the government for finance and uh, make a, a kind of a social work and contribution to the well-being of this or that part of society is an important uh, uh, value in itself. So, so by and large, I, I, I stick to my <laughs> views that in this respect, uh, even the influence of Western NGOs is uh, very helpful. 
Okay, I'd like to say we do have copies of uh, Professor Bokorosh's book, Accidental, Occidental, still available. We will have an opportunity for some additional discussion upstairs, and I hope you'll join me in thanking both of our presenters, Professor Bokorosh and Professor Dr. Thank you.